This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is a selection of verses from the book of Proverbs. You can find it in the printed bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Drew. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you um, this morning. It is Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday to you. I just want to read before we get into um, our study, the last one in the series of uh, in the seven deadly sins. Uh, just one little uh, one little reading, one little thought about Palm Sunday um, continues on with our theme for the morning. But Matthew uh, 21 is the story of the uh, triumphal entry and Jesus entering into. Uh, Jerusalem, and uh, right after that time where it, it, Matthew describes him coming in on, on a donkey, shortly la- afterwards, Jesus goes into the temple, and this is what it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus called out to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast brought perfect praise. And historically in the life of the church, Palm Sunday is one of those days where children are meant to lead all of us in worship because of that, right? Because of that, uh, that, the, the fact that uh, they were calling out, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus commends this, right? Out of the mouth of babes, thou hast perfect praise. And uh, just a few hundred years after that, uh, Ephraim uh, sometimes called uh, Ephraim the Syrian. He was a pastor, church father in Mesopotamia. And during one of his, uh, his church's uh, Palm Sunday services where they had children singing, he had composed a, a little poem. And I'll just read it to you, or part of it anyway. He writes, Fair and eloquent flowers have the children strewn before the king. The donkey was garlanded with them. The path was filled with them. They scattered praises like flowers, their songs of joy like lilies. Now, too, at this festival, does the crowd of children scatter for you, Lord, praises like blossoms. Blessed is he who is acclaimed by your children. What a great thing to be able to get a little taste of that this morning uh, in the church as the children uh, led us um, with their cries of Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, And yet this week is uh, one where uh, we kind of have mixed feelings. On the one hand, we we get a glimpse this morning of um, what things are supposed to be like, children leading us in worship. And then uh, just this past Monday, uh, we get a glimpse of uh, the brokenness, the heartache, the heaviness of the world as uh, children in a church school connected to our denomination in uh, Nashville um, were killed 
and um, in, in a shooting, along with three staff members, adult staff members of the school. And so as we begin this morning, I just want to take a moment to pray. I know we have uh, heavy hearts and some are connected in some way or another to some of the families that uh, are there, but maybe to, to just give a little attention uh, to that and, uh, and the way that we, um, we pray and even as the way we uh, frame our, our worship together this morning. So would you bow your heads with me and we'll just pray for a moment uh, as we begin. Father, indeed, we do come, and uh, we come not always knowing what to say or even how to pray or how to understand uh, events like this when they happen, particularly when when children uh, are victims. And so, Lord, we ask, um, believing that you um, are tender in your mercies, that you are close to the brokenhearted, we pray that, indeed, you would be so to those who are grieving now, to those who have lost loved ones uh, in Nashville, to those um, who are experiencing the trauma of having been in school and uh, when something like that has happened, both the staff and the, the children. Father, we pray for the family of the perpetrator as well, who are dealing with their own grief and sorrow and trauma. Lord, we pray as we enter into this holy week that We would remember that you are close to the brokenhearted and to the suffering because you yourself have suffered. We pray that we'd also remember that there is reason to believe that these tragic events uh, don't get the last word, that suffering does not get the last word, but the light of the resurrection, we pray, would both give us hope and inform our grieving and help us to look forward to your saving help that comes ultimately in the fullness of the kingdom of God, but one through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I was talking to someone this week at our uh, men's uh, meetup that we had on Monday night, and it was somebody... I hadn't met before who was a physical therapist, and so, you know, when you meet somebody who has a job like that, you start telling them about all your aches and your pains, and of course, I played the the role well, and uh, I was telling a story about when I first moved to Cincinnati, which is 20 years ago now. Within weeks of moving here, I was asked to sub in a softball game uh, right across the way at Oakley Playground, not too far from here, and I was playing third base. And a ball was hit down the line, and I dove with my glove hand toward the third baseline. I hit the ground in an awkward fashion such that it shoved my shoulder out of the socket, right, in a rear fashion. And it was, uh, you know, I've had broken bones, I've had torn ligaments, I've had eye surgeries, I've had all kinds of ailments and things. This was by far the worst pain from an injury that I've ever experienced. In fact, I almost passed out right there on the field. So they called the ambulance. EMT comes, and the reason I was having this physical therapy conversation is that a rear dislocation, a posterior dislocation of your shoulder is quite rare. Most people haven't seen it. And I know that because the EMT had not seen it. And as he tried to make me comfortable, what he did is he positioned my arm in a way that you would for an uh, side dislocation. But when you do that for a posterior dislocation, it actually shoves the shoulder further and further and further out of the socket. Again, I almost lost consciousness. Uh, now, I bring that story up this morning because Dorothy Sayers has a really poignant definition of sin. That always makes me think of that story. She says, and I think we have the words on the screen there, she says that sin is a deep, interior 
dislocation of the soul. Sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. And just like with my shoulder, right, the dislocation, it's not just the socket that's involved, but everything around it is traumatized, right? It comes with a grinding. It comes with a tearing. And so it is when our souls are dislocated, right? If we're supposed to be centered on God, if our souls are supposed to be centered on God, if what sin does is it dislodges and dislocates that, then there's going to be a grinding. There's going to be a tearing that's going to show up in our lives in one way or another. And that's why we've been doing this series. That's why we've been talking about the seven deadly sins, not because they're primarily um, transgressing a boundary or breaking a rule, But things like envy and pride and lust and gluttony and sloth and greed and anger, they break friendships. They destroy communities. They're cancers that eat away at your soul. They're like poking holes in your life through which the good life leaks out. That's why we've been spending so much time trying to talk about it and how to be healed from them. And so today we come to the last of these seven deadly sins. And we're going to talk about envy. Normally, and Brian brought this up a few weeks ago, normally people talk about pride being the king of all the sins, the great sin, you know, and, uh, but it's interesting to note that the moral theologians historically, they place envy right next on that list, which I'm sure maddens envy to no end, right? To be number two. Yeah. We're going to talk about envy in three ways this morning. We're going to talk about the power of envy. And then we're going to camp out in a little case study from the scriptures about what envy does or how it grows in our life. And then finally, like we have every week, we're going to talk about what's the remedy, right? How are we healed from envy? All right, so first, let's talk about the power of envy. But what is it, first of all? Simply defined, envy is sorrow or resentment at another's good. Envy is sorrow or resentment at another's good. Rather than root for others, rather than rejoice with others, envy makes you bitter when good things come to somebody else. And this really is a demonic thing when you think about it, right? That's the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself, isn't it? Envy weeps because others are rejoicing. Envy rejoices when others are weeping. It's the exact opposite of a godly state of mind. John Gilgood the great British actor, in his autobiography, he said this. He said, when Sir Laurence Olivier played Hamlet in 1948, the critics raved, and I wept. And that's envy, right? The critics raved, and I wept. Herman Melville said this. He said, envy is the rabies of the human hearts because it makes you insane. It makes you foam at the mouth before it actually kills you. There's an old joke, an English woman, a French man, and a Russian farmer find a genie in a bottle, and they each get a wish. I'm not going to do all the accents here. Well, maybe I'll do the last one, but uh, so the English woman, she says, you know, uh, she gets, you know, she gets her wish first, and she says, I have a friend with a wonderful cottage in the country, and I I want one just like hers, but with two more bedrooms and an extra bathroom and a lovely brook running through the property. And the French man says, well, I have a friend with a lovely wife, and I want a wife like his, except she should be even prettier and more sophisticated and also rich. And then the Russian farmer says, I have a friend with a wonderful cow, 
It produces the best milk, cheese, and butter in the whole village. I want that cow dead. (laughs) That's envy, right? Sorrow or resentment at another's good. The last of your Proverbs in the list there in the bulletin is Proverbs 27, verse 4, where it says, Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? And the word jealousy there is often translated envy. And it's a rhetorical question, right? Who can stand before jealousy? Answer, well, no one. Right? When you're in the grip of it, it makes you insane. But wait a minute. Right? Doesn't the Bible say that God is a, a jealous God? It sure does. Lots of places, actually, but some of them I'll just list for you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. And the Bible doesn't only mention Jealousy is a positive quality for God. It, Elijah is described, the prophet Elijah is described positively with a form of jealousy. First Kings chapter 19, it says there he came, that is Elijah came to a cave. He lodged in it and behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. So what's going on here? And Derek Kidner is really helpful, the Old Testament scholar. He says this. He says, there's a difference between jealousy for and jealousy of. There's a difference between jealousy for and jealousy of. Jealousy for can be a very good thing. In fact, it's a great thing. It's a mark of love. When God is said to be jealous for his people, right? It's an intolerance for harm to them. It's an intolerance for uh, disruptive intrusion in the relationship. This kind of jealousy is what motivates us to maintain a relationship, strengthen a relationship, mend or restore a broken relationship. The Apostle Paul speaks of his jealousy for the Corinthians, Right, that they would be exclusively devoted to God, right? which moves him at one point to use some strong language to wake them up to the ways that they have let their relationship with the Lord weaken. This jealousy for is a commitment to the relationship. It's a desire to see the others thrive. It's a mark of love. That's not envy. Envy, though, is jealousy of which is when you want what someone else has. Jealousy of is when you want someone else's life. It's when you look at someone else and you see what they have, and instead of rejoicing that they have it, you weep that you don't. And Proverbs chapter 14 says this kind of jealousy actually begins to eat away at you. Proverbs 14 verse 30, your first one in the list. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A tranquil heart, right? Contentment. This is what gives you life. It allows you to love others. It frees you up to serve others. It rejoices with others. It encourages others. It helps you to root for others. But envy, on the other hand, it rots the bones. It eats you up physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Envy is sorrow or resentment at another's good. I want that cow dead, right? 
Let's talk about how it works. We're going to dip out of Proverbs here for just a moment and dip into 1 Samuel chapter 18. We walked through these texts not too long ago. I believe it was last summer we were in the life of David. But there is in 1 Samuel 18, I think, really the classic depiction of envy in all of the scriptures. It has to do with King Saul and his relationship to David. And I won't read to you the whole story, but just a few verses. First Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 to 9. Here's what it says. And they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, everybody loved David, right? God loved him. He was the anointed leader. The people loved David. He had just defeated Goliath, the champion of their enemy, the Philistines. Saul's own family loved David, right? Especially Jonathan. He says he loved David like a brother. Everybody loved David except Saul. And the reason was envy. Later on, Saul actually tries to kill David six times, in fact. But that's not how it starts. It didn't start with attempted murder. It starts small. It starts with a look. Saul eyed David from that time on. And that's how envy works, friends. It grows silently within us like a disease. And by the way, that's one of the reasons it's associated with the color of green, right? You're green with envy because it's growing inside of you, if you'll let it. And this case helps us see some of how envy works. And how does it work? Well, it always begins with comparison, right? Envy is when you are unable to enjoy what someone else has because you're thinking that you should have had it. Verse 8, 1 Samuel 18, Saul was very angry. The saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have? But the kingdom. You see, with envy, you can't say he or she has this or that or the other, right? You can't just leave it at that. It's not he, it always goes very next, very quickly, but me. He has this, but me. They say he's killed ten thousands, but me. They only say I've killed thousands. Bertrand Russell once wrote about how envy made. So many great military figures unhappy and ultimately led to their failure and their ruin. He said Napoleon was never content with his empire because he envied what Julius Caesar once had until in trying to match Caesar's success, he got himself exiled. And Julius Caesar was never content because he envied Alexander the Great and it got him killed. And Alexander the Great was never content because he envied Hercules who never actually existed. (laughs) Envy makes everything a competition, a comparison. It's never just he or she, but it's always a but me. Turns everything back in 
upon yourself. You can never appreciate somebody else's happiness or success or promotion or reward or beauty without immediately connecting it to you. You can't appreciate somebody else getting a raise without thinking I didn't. You can't appreciate somebody who's happily married without thinking I'm not. You can't be happy for somebody who had a great vacation without thinking I could never afford that. You can't be happy for someone's achievement without thinking you're not there yet. Not only does envy make it impossible for you to rejoice with others because of comparison, envy makes it impossible for you to enjoy what you already have out of resentment. My friend uh, Ray Kanata, pastor in New Orleans, who's uh, going to be speaking at our men's retreat here in just a few weeks, but he tells a story about uh, his parents. Uh, they bought uh, a business, um, this is 30 years ago or so, but they bought an already existing business, a business that had a long institutional history, and his parents sort of moved into this operation, and on the first day of the new ownership, they decided that what they were going to do is surprise all the employees with a, a surprise raise. Nobody uh, knew that it was going to happen, and everybody was going to get it. Everybody was going to get a raise, right? Wonderful thing. Now, not everybody was going to get the same raise. Some people got a dollar or $2 raise, which, again, 30 years ago is still pretty significant, but some people actually got more because of the value of, of the work that they were doing or at least the uh, thought of what um, the new owners thought the value they were bringing to the organization. And, again, they thought they would be heroes, Right as the new owners, everybody's going to be th- uh, thrilled. Unexpected surprise raise, hooray! Do you know what actually happened? Several people quit in protest on that first day because their raise was less than someone else in the organization. That's envy. Saul is the king. The people liked him. They run out to meet him. They sing a song about him. Thousands that he's conquered. They're cheering him on. But because they sing about David's ten thousands, none of that matters to Saul. And you know how this works in your own life, right? You're fine with your home. You're fine with your apartment or your house. You like it. It's cozy. It works great for you. But then you go to somebody else's house and it's nicer or bigger. They have a better yard or it's better decorated. And all of a sudden you get home and this house that like ten minutes ago you loved... All you see is all the flaws, right? Or you're happy at work until you find out that somebody you consider to be your peer gets paid more than you. You were happy, but now you're underappreciated and you start looking for a new job. You didn't know how bad you had it until that loser you found out got paid more than you, right? Pastors do this. Right? Things are going well at church until you hear the story of the guy His church started later, is doing more, more significant, more recognized. Envy not only begrudges others good things, it prevents you from enjoying what you have. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on this about 250 years ago. And he says, you know, don't make the mistake of thinking that envy is a small thing. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is a sort of a minor sin, Don't underestimate the power of envy because he says, he gives two examples. He says, you know, the devil was in heaven, right? The devil was in heaven. He was an angel. But then he had a thought. I'm number two. I should be number one, right? Envy is what made it possible not to enjoy heaven. Think about that. 
or Adam and Eve, right? They're in paradise, no sickness, no pain, no death. They had a thought. Maybe the one tree we can't eat of is the tastiest tree, the best tree, the most life-giving tree. Envy makes paradise not good enough. Envy is what makes the devil demonic. Envy is what ruined the universe. So brothers and sisters, don't underestimate what envy can do to you. It will suck the joy out of everything. When you're in its control, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be content with what's in front of you. And that's actually one of the really unique features of envy, isn't it? It's the one sin you never really enjoy. I mean, all the other seven deadly sins, right? They're destructive. We've been talking about that. But they feel good, at least for a while, right? Lust, gluttony, greed, anger. They're fun for a little bit, but not envy. It's the one that's bitter all the way down. What do we do about it, right? What happens if you spot some of the signs of this in your own life? What's the remedy for envy? Proverbs 23, it's the second one in your list. It says this, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Again, Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, is really helpful here. He says the remedy for envy, according to Proverbs 23, is to look up and to look ahead. Look up, verse 17, and look ahead, verse 18. Right? First, look up. Let not your heart envy sinners, but instead continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. You see, at the end of the day, envy really is a kind of unbelief, isn't it? It's a refusal to trust in the goodness of God to you. Envy comes when you refuse to believe that God's plans and God's provisions are good enough for you. And that's why envy seeks to to tear down others. If you don't think that God is really providing for you, then you really do have to defend, for your, defend yourself, look out for yourself, right? If life really is a survival of the fittest and everything's a zero-sum game, then you have to see everybody else as your competitor or your enemy. Their achievement isn't something to rejoice in. It's something maybe you should have had, you could have had. And the flip side of this, right, if envy is not trusting in God to provide, it actually begins to reveal what you're trusting instead, right? How do you know what really makes you tick? How do you know what it is that's driving you, what you think will really make you happy in life? One way to figure that out is to look at what you most begrudge others having when you think they don't deserve it, right? What what, what you get most upset about that others have and you don't have, that's the thing that you're really trusting, for your happiness and your significance. For Saul, it was the kingship. For you, it might be money or success or family or prestige or accolades. Whatever you begrudge others is a clue to what you really think life is all about. But faith, right? Faith in the providence of God, faith in the goodness of God, faith in God's provision to you has a way of vaporizing envy, right? Because it trusts that God is in control of what I have and what you have and that God is good and that God, he loves me and he's going to give me what I really need. Faith that trusts this 
begins to weed out the envy that's growing in your heart. It begins to free us and pry us away from resentment and competition. As we see God's love and provision for us in Jesus, it vaporizes envy. And so we need to look up. But then secondly, we need to look ahead. Proverbs 23 verse 18 says, Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Or Proverbs 24 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. You see, envy is preoccupied with the present, with the right now. But the book of Proverbs says you have to expand your timeline, right? Give God a chance to work. He settles things in the end, right? He's just and brings things about in the end. Envy only looks at the now, but faith looks into the future. Surely there is a future, it says, and your hope will not be cut off. The flip side, the evil man has no future, right? The lamp of the wicked will be Put out. You need to look ahead and see the justice of God. Psalm 37 gets at this same idea. It's the story of a man who's struggling with the apparent prosperity of sinful people. And he looks around and he sees people who are not following the Lord and they seem to be happy and they seem to be healthy. And he's struggling and he doesn't know how to reconcile this with the goodness of God. By the time you get to the end of Psalm 37... He's processed this in the presence of the Lord and begins to see that this view is short-sighted. Because when he looks ahead, he knows that God, either in this life or the next, will be just. He will settle things right. That is a way of slaying envy. Because Derek Kidner says you've got to look up to the Lord, to his goodness. You look ahead, realizing that he's going to make things right. But I want to add one more. Look out or outward, that is, in toward others. Jonathan Edwards talks about this, again, same sermon, but he says, the essence of love, real love, is when your joy is knit to another person's joy. That's what real love is, is when you pour your happiness, your love into the joy of someone else, right? This is the kind of thing you're made for, right? You want the best for the other person so much that you're only really happy when they're happy, right? You pour your happiness into their happiness, right? And in 1 Samuel 18, if Saul is the example of envy, well, the foil in that chapter is Jonathan and his love. 1 Samuel 18 verse 1 says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Do you hear that? Jonathan poured his happiness, his joy, into the joy and the well-being and the flourishing of David. And this kind of love, this kind of rooting for somebody else, this kind of wanting someone else to thrive and flourish, it cannot abide envy. To love people like this means you're not one less bit happy when something good happens to them than if it would happen to you. You rejoice with them in the way that you would if it came to you, were you created for this kind of love? This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy. Love does not envy. So it's the remedy for envy. It's to look up. It's to have your eyes on the Lord. To trust in his provision and kindness, not on what others have, but on God's ability to provide for you. It's to look ahead to trust that in the end, God will give us all that we need and no one will be able to say 
that they lacked any good thing and to look outward. Right? Love does not envy, but it pours your joy into the joy of the others around you. And I'll just conclude this morning by saying, you know, it is the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, and this whole week really gives us a lot of ammunition to slay the envy that exists in our life, right? Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's received as a king, like King Saul would have been received. Everybody's looking at Jesus. They're hailing him as king. Hosanna, they cried, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is the king. We go from Palm Sunday to Monday, Thursday. And what's this king doing? He's down on his hands and knees. He's washing the feet of the disciples. He's taking the role of a servant. He's praying in John 17, the glory that you've given me, Father, I want to give it to them. Right? The whole arc of Jesus' life is stripping himself of his glory, the thing that he deserves, so that he can give it to somebody that doesn't deserve it at all. And then on to Good Friday and the cross. In Philippians, it says he emptied himself. He became vulnerable. He became killable. He had the crown rights, but he's willing to lose it. In Jesus, we see the exact opposite of envy. If envy is sorrowing at another's good, in Jesus, we see him becoming a man of sorrows for your good. He's willing to die so that you get what you don't deserve, the grace and love and forgiveness of God the Father. Isn't that wonderful? And the more that you see this and the more that you know this, the more that you can trust in this, the more that envy is going to wither and die in your life. You have to use Holy Week on your envy to kill your envy. Even this week, you can do this, right? Be thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for you. How can you envy, right? If you see Jesus dying for you, he's not thinking about, oh, they don't deserve this. They don't de-. He's dying so we can get what we don't deserve so that we can have the joy we don't deserve. How can we envy when we know he does that? And then thinking about our own life, right? How can we begrudge happiness and grace and forgiveness and joy to others when we know that Jesus gives us grace and joy and forgiveness that we have in no way earned? This whole week is loaded up to help you prune the envy in your life and instead to build in a kind of love that does not envy. So let's start this morning. Let's start as we come to the Lord's Supper together in a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's give thanks to the Lord. The band's going to lead us in another song, and then we're going to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful uh, for the chance to uh, look under the hood, take our pulse on all of these deadly sins that the church throughout history has seen to be the ones that are most likely to get us. And as we've gone through the series, I think we've seen that Indeed, that's the case. We have the, uh, at least the seeds of all these things in us. And it's not just about rules, but we realize that when these things take root in us, they do real damage. Poke holes in our lives. They dislocate our soul. And there's grinding, there's tearing, there's brokenness that comes from each of these things. Lord, would you help us to repent? Would you help us to turn to you? Would you help us to sit under your word in such a way that our hearts are soft and we can change direction, and we can run to you, and particularly this morning, would you remind us, would you show us, maybe for the first time, your love for us, your provision for us, would you help us to know that that's enough, 
And then when we look around and see what others have, we don't have to envy because we'll feel rich, we'll feel provided for, we'll feel taken care of, and we can really rejoice in the good things that come to others. We can root for them, we can cheer for them, we can love them, and we can actually enjoy the things that you've given us as well. We can be content. Would you move our hearts in that direction even as we continue to worship this morning? We all pray all this in Christ, our Savior's name. Hosanna. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.